So welcome to 12 Stone Across the Campuses Online. You've joined us for a great day. Today we're going to jump into the book of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to apply it uniquely and particularly to men. Now everyone's going to benefit by this, but it's a two-part conversation. Today and into Father's Day next weekend. And we're going to consider the five marks of a man. But to get there, we got to jump right into 1 Corinthians. So across the campuses, get out your mobile device, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Get out a worship center Bible. You picked one up on the way in, or, or maybe it's underneath your chair or sitting right there in front of you. And we're on page 1142, page 1142, sitting in the book of 1 Corinthians. Let's look at it together. Now, page 1142, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So Paul the apostle is immediately saying that I'm a man who lives by the will of God. I don't live by my own will. I don't live for my own will. I don't live for my own purposes. I live for and by the will of God. I'm not, I'm not running my own life. I'm not, I'm not trying to figure out how to get God to do what I want. I'm trying to figure out how to walk with God and do what he wants. It's who I am. Verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth. The church of God. In other words, the church is God's, right? I mean, it's his church. It's not a business. It's his church. It's established by Jesus. By his sacrifice, death, burial, and resurrection. This was established by him. So, so Jesus is all about the church. It's, it's always fascinating to me when people say, hey, I'm into Jesus. I'm just not into church. That's like saying, look, listen, I just joined the Atlanta Falcon football team. I'm just not into football. I mean, it's kind of an ignorant statement. It means you don't really understand what's going on. You, if, if you're into Jesus, but you're not into his church, you're not into Jesus like you think you are. Because Jesus established the church. And Paul writes, we're still in verse 2, look at it, the church of God in Corinth. Now, when we say in Corinth, he's talking particularly about where the church is located. This book is a letter from Paul to the church. And Corinth is a city in Greece. So maybe we can put that up on the screen. And that uh, Athens is about 40 miles to the east of Corinth. Corinth is, is left of Athens, about 40 miles. It's, it's harbored, so it has three harbors, two that were primary. And if you look at that map, you'll start to see how it all connects, meaning that, that well, Corinth is a place, and so 1 Corinthians is a book written to Corinth. In fact, if you go around, you see Thessalonica at the top and Philippi, and you go around the other side, you see Ephesus, uh, you see Colossae. All of these are names of locations where Paul planted churches, and as Paul planted the churches, then the letters in the Bible are written to them. So you have the book of Ephesus, uh, uh, Ephesians from Ephesus, Colossians from Colossae, Thessalonica from First and Second Thessalonians, and here we have the book of Corinthians to the church at Corinth. Now, there are some distinct challenges here because they had about 400,000 people in Corinth. And Corinth was a, a town that had uh, some temples in it. Here's a picture of uh, Marcia at, at the 
uh, ruins of the Temple of Apollo we visited here in Greece uh, several years ago. And this temple to Apollo also had in Corinth the temple to Aphrodite. And this temple to Aphrodite would have had, uh, as some history suggests, uh, maybe hundreds of priestesses, which, which really were prostitutes, as part of what went on in the city. Now, some think that's an exaggeration, but what is no exaggeration is that Corinth was a major town, a major city, often referred to as Sin City, because there was a, a great, uh, if you will, uh, activity in, the, in, in sexual indulgence with Aphrodite as the god of sex and beauty, as well as materialism. In other words, a lot like the culture we live in in this country. And Paul's writing to the church, and he's about to help the church navigate something. Because, well, let, let's, I'll, let me put it on the screen for you. Let, let me look down. The church in Corinth wrote to Paul a letter of questions. And then Paul wrote them a letter in response. And we don't have that letter. And then Paul received reports from the church. And then Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. So the book that we have in front of us is now that letter that Paul wrote in response to the reports that he had received. And he goes on in verse 2. To all the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be the holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. In other words, this is all because of Jesus. 12 stone, even online, say it with me. This is all what? Because of Jesus. Built by Jesus, because of Jesus, restored by Jesus, we're committed to Jesus, we follow Jesus, and that's why he says in that verse, so be holy. And in fact, Paul was kind of drawing out this imagery right here. There is the worldview that sits in the unholy in darkness. And now you have moved over to holy, the light. This all because of Jesus. And there's no middle ground. And so Paul's having to write a letter because people kind of have a foot in both worlds. They're coming out of the world of darkness. They're moving into the world of light. But they're straddled it a little bit and they're kind of caught in the middle. And Paul's writing this to help them correct so you got to know, what does darkness look like? And you've moved away from darkness to light. You live by a Christian, Christ-centered worldview. So you have a distinct view, unlike the rest of the world. And his prayer, verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to need grace and peace. And by the way, he says, your Father in heaven. In other words, men, we have a Father. We, we all have a heavenly father. We Listen, we might be sons in this world. We might be fathers in this world. But the first thing you need to know is you have a heavenly father. And you rise to become the man God created you to be when you live like the son he called you to be. That's how you become a real man. And it will take God's grace and peace for you to become that man. Now Paul's doing all of this writing. In chapter two, he gives us a sense of how critical this is because you're gonna need God's wisdom. Look over the page at chapter two, verse six. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. We declare God's wisdom. We declare whose wisdom? God's wisdom. Jump down to verse 14. 
The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They consider them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. See, we, we need the wisdom of God. And from chapter 2 through chapter 16, Paul gives them the wisdom of God. And then he summarizes it with this tight, coach-like, clear thought, five of them, in chapter 16. Just flip over to the back of the book, the last chapter. Oh, just keep flipping till you hit chapter 16. It's on page 1156 in the Worship Center Bible. In verses 13 and 14, Paul gives his final instructions. And he says, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Now, that's the New International Version. I like in particular the ESV. And we're going to put that on the screen. And I want you to see it because it gives a very particular statement to men. Be watchful. That's the first thought. Then stand firm in the faith. Then act like what? Men. Like literally in the, in the Greek languages, be courageous like men. Then be strong. Then let all that you do be done in love. Brian Tome, a pastor and friend of mine, wrote this book, The Five Marks of a Man. And he sits in 1 Corinthians 16, and particularly uh, these five thoughts that come out of those two verses. And, and when he writes the book right at the beginning, here's his kind of introductory thoughts. Once upon a time, a prince asked a beautiful princess, will you marry me? And the princess said, no. And so the prince lived happily ever after and rode his Harley and four-wheelers and had shotguns and poker nights and Call of Duty marathons and drank Pappy Van Winkle and smoked cigars in the house without a woman objecting and spent all his money on himself and lived every day like he was Fer Ferris Bueller while scratching himself whenever he wanted and leaving the toilet seat up the end. Very funny and true if you're a boy. He goes on in his writing and says, I don't have issues with the vices I've mentioned. I have issues with the males I know who glorify these things and believe that they are signs of manhood. These are males, but they are not men. There are 15-year-old men and there are 45-year-old boys. And I've come to believe that the transition from boyhood to manhood is not marked by age. It's marked by things that are much more substantial, such as your mindset, your actions, assuming responsibility for your place in the world and stepping into a new reality, one defined by strength, purpose, and a code of honor. And so he sits in this section of Corinthians 16, verses 13 to 14. And let me put on the screen his thoughts, and this might be helpful worth jotting down. Be watchful. In other words, number one, men have a vision. Say it with me. Men have a what, everybody? Vision. Number two, stand firm. Men take a minority position. In other words, stand firm. As soon as you realize what's important, you realize that many times you have to swim upstream to go after the things that matter most. Stand firm. Three, act like men. In other words, you'll see that it's plural. It's men. Men don't do life alone. Men are team players. Be strong. It's going to take a certain strength where you become productive and contribute to the world around you. In other words, men work. 
5. All done in love. That there is a tenderness and an attentiveness. You live beyond yourself. In other words, men are protectors. Hey, those are five really good summary statements to say this is what it means to be a man. And listen, if you don't have a vision for what it means to be a man, then this is a good one. I, I want to talk to... to to my, my brothers, if you will. And when I, when I say my brothers, I mean I, mean, I want to talk to all the guys. <laughs> Whether you're my younger brothers and you're in middle school, high school, or, or college, I want to talk to you. I, I, I think the Spirit of God wants to weave something in your soul, a vision for being a man. We're only going to spend time on the first one today. On Father's Day, we'll pick up the other four. But we're going to sit in this men have a vision. I want to talk to single men or married men. If you have children and you're in the early stages of carving out your career and figuring out how to be a man who's married with children, or whether you're middle-aged, your kids are growing up, maybe they're in, they're in high school, maybe you're like me, you've hit the 50s, maybe you're, maybe you're empty nester, we're all jealous. Good for you, you have more freedom. Someday. Jaden graduates. I retire, it's all the same. I'll never be empty nester. But let's move on. I digress. I have three sons. And when he writes, men have a vision, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. If you don't have a vision, then what are you shooting for? I mean, I have three sons, and, and, and I have been trying to pour into them a vision of being a man. They're born boys, but they got to be raised to be men. That stuff doesn't just happen. And I, I don't know uh, for you, but I didn't have that growing up. My parents divorced me coming into middle school, and then my two older brothers left with my dad soon after, and I spent that middle section of my formative years without them in my life. That was undoing. And I, if you don't have a vision, take those five. Let those five be your vision. Men have a vision. Men take a minority position. Men are team players. Men work. Men are protectors. So let's sit a little bit in this men have a vision piece. And let's dig deeper in that. And make that, if you will, kind of the formative. If you need a vision, that's a good one. Because when you don't, when you don't have a vision, when you don't have a target, well, then, then, then you miss. And uh, I had my first hunting quail experience uh, this past February. Uh, I'll just rate it as awesome, uh, like top 10, five, uh, top 10 things of fun I've done in my life. I will be going back. Uh, that was quite fantastic. Uh, I, didn't need, I didn't need any training in uh, shooting guns. I've shot thousands of rounds. Love that stuff. That's a lot of fun. But I hadn't gone quail hunting before, and so, you know, the quail fly up, and they do these funky patterns, and, and follow them, and to hit them with the 20-gauge, that was just fun and exciting. I had a couple rules I had to learn early on. Uh, first thing they taught us, don't shoot the dog. Uh, the second thing was don't shoot the guide. These things seem to matter to them. Uh, apparently, when the dog gets out there, does the point, scares up the, the quail, uh, you got to make sure your gun's above that. Don't shoot too early. Don't take the dog out. When the dog's up a hill, be careful. Pay attention. And there was a, a price you had to pay. You kill a dog, you pay for the dog, it's in the thousands. So you sign a contract. Wow, they're serious about that. And they said, don't shoot the guide, but there was no penalty for that. So <laughs> I'm just guessing the dog was most important. 
So I'm out there uh, with other guys, and, and, and I'm, I'm doing okay. I mean, I'm doing great. It's my first time. I'm probably hitting 70% of the birds. I'm, I may have to take the second shot to get it. It's a double-gauge shotgun. Uh, and so, so I'm, I'm having fun, but I never hit a covey. A covey is where there's like 8 to 25 uh, quail flying up all at one time. So the second day, we hit the first covey. And, and the dog pointed in, and the dog scared him up. And now there's birds going all over. And I was like, boom, boom. I mean, I just... I shot at the group. How many do you think I got? Non-zero nits, nada, nothing. And so I got apparently the standard lecture from the guide. Apparently you know a neophyte when you see one. So you really don't know what you're doing. I said, apparently not. He said, listen, as soon as the covey releases, you have to pick one. Listen, you have to limit your options to win. Oh, you, you can't shoot at them all, or you'll get none. You have to limit your options to win. You know, that started to make sense. So men, let me talk to us. What are you shooting for? Because if you don't have a vision of what it means to become a man, become a man, what, what, you're going to miss. Maybe there's something in all of this. If I'm talking to my sons, a rising generation, I'm going to talk about get a vision for eternity. Make decisions, live today with an eye on eternity. You, you got to get a vision, bigger vision for your life. I mean, I, I pour this into my son, certainly, and same thing into my daughter. But, but get a vision, and I tell him there's only four things you have to win. If you've been around here over the last 20 years, you would have heard me teach this two, three, four, five times. I'm going to say it all again. There are only four things you have to win. Get a vision for your life bigger, bigger than today. Because watch, when scripture says watch, be on guard. Saying, listen, the world is going to tell you lies, don't buy them. Be on watch, be on guard. The world's going to tell you to live for today, who cares about tomorrow, and certainly eternity doesn't matter. You got to do better. And I said there are only four things you got to win between 18 and 25. Here they are. The first one is get a vision of God first. You got to know what you're shooting for in life. Get a vision of God first. Listen, if you don't get a vision of God first, you'll put the wrong thing first. You'll either put yourself or somebody else or something else. And when you do, you have a lesser thing in first. It shouldn't be first. It can't sustain first. It's inadequate to be first in your life. And therefore, because you picked a loser for first, you're going to lose in life. But you've got to figure out, what are you going to seek first? Scripture says, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all the rest of this will come together in your life. And God will be gracious and able to do. So live for today with an eye on eternity. Get a vision of God first. Second, get a vision of sexual purity. I say to my sons, listen, this world, you got to be on guard. You got to be watching. The world's going to tell you your body is a toy, not a temple. And they're going to tell you, indulge it. And it's going to progressively wreck your life. You're going to do the beautiful gift that God gave you. Sex belongs inside of marriage with a very unique design and a oneness that comes as a result of that. That unity you reserve for marriage. Your body's a temple. Honor it. Don't unite it with anyone. The world's going to tell you, indulge it. You have a desire. It's natural. Go do it. You don't need a baby out of wedlock. You know, there's a whole lot of problems in our culture where none of us are being honest about. They come simply because we don't have a vision of sexual purity. Third, there's only four things you got to win between 18 and 25. Third, get a vision for career success. 
In other words, between 18 and 25, you could put the formative foundations for a future career. I know college is the time for parties, so the world says, but be on guard. That's not its role. Its primary purpose is preparation, not party. Yes, have fun, but make sure fun is the last thing you do, not the first thing you do. Because the world's going to tell you, play now and pay later. And that life is a difficult life. But if you pay early on, you build the kind of life that can play later. Be smart. Envision a future career and go build the foundations of it. Strong careers don't just happen. They're built. Fourth, get a vision for financially smart living. The world's going to tell you use money to have fun and don't have any problem with debt. Just get a credit card and keep sliding it. Pay later, pay later, pay later, pay later, pay later. Just debt all of college. Don't work through college. Don't just pay later, pay later. Don't even get a career necessarily in college. Pursue your hobbies in college. Just debt, debt, debt. And look at the load of debt that sits on a generation who bought into the lie that debt is freedom when in fact debt's a prison. Come on now. We're being honest. Learn how to make and manage money. These kinds of things are so practical and so powerful. You live for today with an eye on eternity. Now, let me talk to men past that stage of life, because really this is for all of us. Men have a vision, and that is to say real men get a vision for standing against temptation and winning. I want to go right back to this watchful thing. Peter would have said it this way. Peter would have said uh, the lion, the, uh, Satan is like a lion, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He will desire to devour you. Satan desires to undo you. And so let me offer you a practice. Let's put this on the screen. And this, this could sit on the screen the whole time if we wanted. But I want you to write this down. If you wrote nothing else down, write this down. Real men limit their options. Real men limit their options. Everybody say it with me across all the campuses, loud and proud. I want to make sure we're hearing the same thing. What does it say? Real men limit their options. That's all I want to talk about for the remainder of our time. I want to just keep digging deeper on this. And I want us to walk away with the sense of the power of that thought. See, just like quail hunting, if you don't pick one, if you don't limit your options, you lose. The only way to win is limit your options. You get inside that and say, oh, that makes sense. I wrote it this way in my notes. Just not that profound, just right. A whole bunch of men are missing in life because they won't honor, listen, because they won't honor that once you make a decision, you have limited your options. Come on, let's talk this through. Let's think this through. How you win in life is limiting your options. If you won't pick one bird in the covey, you'll hit none. Once you make a decision, you honor it. And thereby you've limited your options. It's the only way to win. I don't talk about this much here. I don't know, maybe... I don't have memory of talking about the man who influenced me the most, who I spent the most time with from age 13 to 17, and it was not my father. The guy's name was Tom. My parents divorced. My two older brothers left with my dad. It was undoing to me to have the three most influential men in my life disappear. And by 13, I'm living with my mom who doesn't have a high school graduation and goes to get a minimum wage job and is struggling, to say the least, 
and a younger sister five years below me who was undone emotionally by this divorce. And there are no more men. My mom went and worked at a roller rink tearing tickets. That was her minimum wage job. And the GM of that roller rink decided to befriend our little family of three. He and his wife and their daughter. Now, you might not have said he was the best choice. <laughs> he was a non-Christian, didn't believe in God or Jesus, didn't believe anything that we believed was true. And I'm a follower of Jesus, and this, uh, yeah, move, move on. You'll grow up. <laughs> he smoked like a chimney. <laughs> and in our church, if you smoke, you're going to hell. Now, I don't believe that today, but when I'm a kid, you smoke and drink. Like literally, our church, you smoke and drink, you're going to hell. I'm like, oh, good, everybody. Oh, my goodness. Every time I see somebody smoke, they're going to hell. They're just practicing. <laughs> the smoke is... Again, I don't believe that stuff today. That's not scripture. But, but, but churches, you know, get off on the wrong stuff. But this guy smoked like a chimney, drank freely, swore like a sailor. I kid you not. He just very freed up. Yet he was more man than my father. And he decided, uh, you know what? I'm going to help this kid. Like on, on uh, that Christmas, he decided a, a boy shouldn't wake up with his mom and sister with meager stuff. And um, when... Uh, that Christmas morning came and we woke up and did our little Christmas thing together, just the three of us. Mom said, run downstairs. We were in a little rental. She said, run downstairs and get some trash bags. I'm like, "We've trash bags for what? It's no big deal. She said, son, just go do it. Okay, I did. And this is what I found uh, in the basement. Check out uh, this picture. Tom had built a racetrack, eight by eight, somehow in the basement without me knowing and decided a boy needs boy toys, and he needs a man pouring into his life. And that was my Christmas wake-up. Isn't that amazing? This guy, he wasn't, he wasn't, wasn't a Chris. He wasn't, he wasn't, you know, he, wasn't, he didn't pray about it. He, did, he just, he, of course, he had no idea God can use anybody, <laughs> which is quite fantastic. And, and Tom taught me to golf. Tom gave me his father's golf clubs and took me out golfing. Every week for the next four years, every week the weather was halfway decent and paid for everything for the next four years. I spent unbelievable amounts of time with him. In fact, he had a favorite phrase because I, you're going to find this hard to believe, but when I was young, I was mouthy. I know, you're like, wow, who can believe that now that you know me? So I would smart off all the time to Tom. And Tom kept saying, don't let your alligator mouth overload your, ta your, your tadpole arse. Only had another word for arse. <laughs> in, in other words, you, you got a big mouth and a little boy tail. You overtalk. Someday you'll become a man. And so we would banter all the time. And then when we were out on the golf course, uh, you know, he would take a shot. And when he missed the shot, I mean, he would cuss. And, you know, and, 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 and when I missed a shot, I'd cuss. And he's... So harsh. You can't do that. What do you mean I can't do that? You do it. He said, yeah, but I don't follow Jesus. Listen. <laughs> he said, listen, you follow Jesus, so you gave up that option. This was a non-Christian cussing up a storm. He just took time. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> listen to me, boy. 
Man, when he delivered that line, it has transformed my life. That's a man principle. When you choose one thing, you gave up a whole bunch of other options. Real men, real men live inside their options and their choices. I mean, that separates them from everybody else. Here's a picture of of Tom when he gave me the golf clubs back in the day. By the way, he was short, which means he's about the size of Jesus, as was I. I long to have those pants again. Okay, take that off the screen. That's really all I want. Do you realize how much of your life falls apart because you play with options you don't have? Pay attention to how often you are playing with options you already gave up. Jesus was tempted. Matthew chapter 4 gives us the story. He'd been in the desert for 40 days. He'd been baptized. The Holy Spirit has landed on him, is within him. Jesus is God in human flesh. But Jesus had suspended his glory. I believe it biblically, theologically means that he set aside his divinity and his power. Therefore, he was fully God, but fully human. And the power of his miracles was not his own power because he was God the Son. It was the power of the Holy Spirit fully indwelling in him. He was the first fully dwelt and dwelt human being on earth. He modeled what God intended us to be. Therefore, the power of his miracles was the power of the Holy Spirit. And the only way that power was accessed is when he did the will of his Father in heaven. Because the power of God is available for the purposes of God, not your purposes. Therefore, at the temptation, when Satan said to him, turn the stone into bread... Jesus could have done it, but it was outside the will of God, and he would have to access his own divine power, disqualifying himself to be the Messiah. See, he had already given up that option. So what was his answer? Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What he was really saying is, I follow God, the Father, I do his will. I've already given up that option. I don't have the option to turn that, that stone into bread. You following me? See, I'd already given up the option. He said, well, come to this high pinnacle and throw yourself down. The angels will take care of you. No, I've already given up that option. I only follow my father. Well, bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms. No, only God is king. See, when you've given up your options, you now know how to win in life. This, the, the more you sit in this, the more you think about it, the deeper it goes. You know, what that, you know what temptation does? Temptation. The temptation in front of Jesus was to make Jesus feel like he was going to win if he said yes and lose if he said no. And that was the lie. Listen very carefully. That's what temptation does. Every time you're tempted, it makes you feel like if you said yes, you're going to win. And if you say no, you lose. And that's the lie of temptation. And Jesus modeled it for us. He was a man. See, when I'm married... I've made a choice. I now forfeit all other options. Once I get married, I'm not looking anymore. Go looking, hunting. If you're single and you want to be married, have at it. But once you say I do, that means I don't. That, that's, that's what it means. Marsha and I were watching... Marcia and I were watching a movie uh, uh, last week, and it was an older movie, like 90s, uh, early 90s movie, and, and it had Brad Pitt in it. 
And then, you know, so Brad Pitt's in his 20s in this movie. And they're doing that slow camera right down to the washboard abs. And that's when I have to bother to say to my wife, that's not your option. (laughs) This is your jungle gym, baby. This is all you got. This is it. You're going to go dream. You dream of this. Some of you might want to pray for her. When I was in my 20s, I was, in counseling, uh, I was counseling a gal in the church. And we were walking through uh, the trauma of her husband's affair. And halfway through the counseling conversation, she made an indecent proposal. Let's do this. I said, I don't have that option. And then I walked out of the room. To be honest with you, I ran. It was one of the creepiest moments of my life. I can't, how, how can you be in the church a follower of Jesus when, and act like you have options you've already given up? That's how you lose, not win. Huh. Where are you playing with options you don't have? That's a really good question. Marsha was trying to help me with that when we bought cars. I like sports cars. I love sports cars. Two seats, Jesus and me. Occasionally, Marsha wants to take Jesus' seat, and that's all right. He can hover. So we had a CRX, and I totaled that, and we got kids, and... I got another CRX. A CRX is a, this old Honda 90s two-seat thing. She's like, what is wrong with you? you? You can't buy cars without seats when you... I said, yes, I can. And I would keep picking the kids up, Josh and Jewel, from, from karate and make them sit on each other's lap and then put the seatbelt over them. She says, that's not even legal. I said, I, I drive safe. And we get there so fast that we, we're less likely that we have less time to have an accident. So... She said, you, 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 you got to act like a father. You act like you don't have kids. I said, I'll buy another car. So I bought another car. I bought a Prelude. A Prelude has a back seat barely. Like literally the front seat is against the back seat. So to sit there, the knees had to be up in there. I said, there you go. I literally did. She said, at some point, hon, you're going to have to grow up to your commitments. And I eventually did. It's so sad. You bought a... <laughs> Bought a minivan. That's not a joke. Every time a man buys a minivan, something inside him dies. I mean, just something, just something inside him dies. I know, I know, I know it's not supposed to, but uh, you know, every time I got in it, I'm like, Men know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Where are you playing with options you don't have? Twelve sections of our sidewalk at our house that we've lived in for over 15 years collapsed this past spring. And they were both by the stormwater on the street because we live on a corner. 
and they just all of a sudden collapsed. And when the Gwinnett DOT, however that works out, came and did all the research, and they didn't just collapse. Water had been running off the grass underneath and into the stormwater, and over 15 years eroding the foundation underneath it. It looked good to the eye. It just wasn't good underneath. Men, there's a way to look good in public, but to live unwise in private. And then someday when everything falls, people say, what happened? It didn't just happen. You'd been playing with options that weren't yours to play with for years where nobody's looking. All had to be rebuilt. When I sat with my father this past January and God graciously restored a nearly 40-year um, distant relationship estranged, I was surprised how healing it was for me when my dad confessed to something. See, when I was young in my teenage years, that 13 to 17 range, I sat down with him, I said, with him and I said, you're not following Jesus. You're, you're not a Christian anymore. He said, yes, I am, and this is what it meant, blah, blah, blah. It confused me. It just it undid me in so many ways. And I brought that back up to him. Now, over 40 years later, and he said, son, I wasn't following Jesus. I was playing with options that were never mine to play with. It costs you and it costs all of us. I'm so sorry. You know, I wish my dad had had someone give this conversation to him when he was young. What could be saved if we just quit playing with options that we've already given up? So men get a vision for being a man. God has a vision for you. And ask yourself, where are you playing with options you don't have? And as I turn the service over to the campus pastors, we want to pray over you. And then next week we'll jump in and finish it off on Father's Day.
Lord, awake your glory. 